The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I heard him once uh, talking to the Harvard senior class commencement. Uh, he uh, gave this extraordinary speech. You know, he was dyslexic, and uh, he, he would look at a paper with me, and he'd say, Hey, George, what's this, what's this word mean? I'd say appendicitis. And he'd say, How do you get a word like appendicitis? so long. It's so long. Here he was teaching, uh, uh, delivering a lecture, senior class day to these thousand, two thousand Harvard graduates. And um, he had these little cards in front of him. He gave this wonderful speech about he hadn't had the opportunity, but they had, and they should use that language, that learning that they had to go out and do their best to change the world and make it a better place. And it was, it was moving and it was funny at the same time and a great roar of appreciation at the end of it. And then someone shouted out, give us a poem. And everybody quieted down. Now, the shortest poem in the English language, according to Bartlett's quotations, is it's called On the Antiquity of Microbes. And the poem is Adam Hadam. It's pretty short. But Muhammad Ali's poem was Me Hui. Two words. I wrote Bartlett's quotations and I said, Look here, that's shorter than Adam Hadam. <laughs> you want to put it in? And it stands for something more than the poem itself. Me, we, what a fighter he was, and what a man. That's author George Plimpton talking about the great Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champion of the world, and incidentally, the great summer Olympian. Here we are on the eve of the Winter Olympics. We're talking about sports and literature today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jack Wilson, your host and loyal and obedient servant. Have you ever read those letters from the 18th century? I remain, sir, your humble and obedient servant. So much better than today's sign-off. I like using love. (laughs) Dear Verizon, you have overcharged me again. Please refund my money and discontinue my service as soon as possible. Love. Jack. As my beloved Swiss grandmother used to say, you can catch more international multimedia conglomerates with flies than with honey. Okay, that was an interesting story about Muhammad Ali we had at the opener here, but we're not actually talking about poetry today. We had to rule that out. We had to draw some lines, set some rules, which is in the spirit of sports, come to think of it, lines and rules. So here were the lines we drew. A single fascinating question. Why are there not more novels about sports for grown-ups? There are a few, very few, a handful. Should there be more? Well, here in America, 100 million people are about to watch the Super Bowl this weekend, and billions of people around the world will watch the Winter Olympics, and we have the World Cup later this year. So where are the novels? People love sports. Where are the novels about sports? We get essays, we have nonfiction, but where are the novels? There are kids' sports books, fiction. There are books for young adults, fiction. There are a million nonfiction books by very talented writers. There are personal essays about what it means to be a fan and autobiographies of athletes. They're all bestsellers. We have mystery series. 
said in the sports world. People do read about sports and they write about sports. They watch sports all the time, including fictional versions of athletes and teams and agents and so on. But sports in novels and literary fiction for grown-ups are underrepresented. Why is that the case? Mike Palindrome is here to talk us through some of these questions. And we're also joined by a man who's written a novel about sports, longtime History of Podcast listener Reagan Sova. He has some particular theories. I had my own theories, but he brought in a different one. So here's what we'll do. I'll finish up the story about Muhammad Ali and poetry, and then we'll have Mike and Reagan join us. Then I'll come back and summarize the theories to see what you think. And then you can email me or tweet at me with all the ideas we've missed. Sports in novels, underrepresented, overrepresented, or properly represented. After this. Oh, feel seems to be someone knocking at the door. Hmm. Hello, this is Bartleby. Ah, hello, Bartleby. The Scrivener. Yes, we heard that from your pen scratching. You might know me from the story by Herman Melville called... Bartleby. <laughs> the Scrivener. I became famous for my catchphrase, I would prefer not to. So, when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that... I would prefer not to. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. <sighs> Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? Ah, yes. Please give your support to Jack Wilson, the man who tricked Bartleby. <laughs> oh, boy. Bartleby came here for the sports episode. I wonder if he watches sports. Perhaps some of those marathon cricket matches that Dickens loved to play and wrote about so well in the Pickwick papers. Or maybe darts. Snooker. Something dark and gloomy. Checkers at midnight. I don't know what Bartleby watches, but I do know this. He's a supporter of the podcast, and now you can be too. Just head on over to patreon.com slash literature, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash literature, and sign up for a monthly contribution. A dollar a month, five bucks a month, or more, whatever works for you. Think of it as buying me a coffee or a beer, or how about a shot of my favorite whiskey, the Old Balvenie Doublewood. If that's your thing, you can sign up now. Payments come from your credit card or PayPal account, or if you're not a recurring monthly kind of person, you can buy me a virtual coffee by heading to historyofliterature.com slash shop. Credit cards and PayPal are both accepted there, too. So, Muhammad Ali, was that the shortest poem in the English language? Maybe. But what was the poem exactly? It's two words, me, we, but how should it be punctuated? And even more strangely, what are the two words? We just heard this. Muhammad Ali just delivered it orally. We have George Plimpton's account of it. But Plimpton himself didn't seem to know or seemed to want to have it both ways. Was it me, period, 
we, period, M-E, period, W-E, period, a call to greatness, a call to community, me, we. We can do it together, people. Or was it me, comma, we, W-H-E-E, exclamation mark, a celebration of the spirit of individuality, me, we, how much fun it is to think about me. We don't know. We don't know. You know why? Because George Plimpton wrote it down in two different ways. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? The shortest poem in the English language, according to George Plimpton, and it can mean two completely opposite things. Two, (laughs) as long as we say it orally, once we write it down, we fix its meaning. We choose, unless we're like George Plimpton, and write it down both ways. In two different places, me, we, or me, we. Wow. There it is. Me, we, a rousing call to set aside your personal wants and desires and background and work together in a team if we're talking about sports or in society, if we're looking at it that way. Me, period, we, period, W-E. Or this one, me, comma, we, I sing a song of myself. I celebrate my greatness. Ali could do either one. He was capable of either one, and so can sports. We love athletes. The fastest man or woman in the world, the best skier, the highest jumper, the most beautiful skater. We also love teams. Miracles on ice. Underdogs. Surprising. Triumphs by nations. Where are the literary novels to to parallel all this, to draw upon them? There are a handful of them, but we're talking about a potential audience of billions of people, all the people who watch sports. They might be persuaded to pick up a literary novel about sports. Why are novels all about families and the workplace and academia and coming-of-age stories. They're about love. They're about overcoming adversity. And yet, hardly any of them are about the triumphs of the human spirit, collective or individuals, that we see in sports. Why do novels and novelists cede the field to nonfiction to bring us these stories? Let's ask Mike and Reagan what they think. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Okay, I'm joined now by our old friend, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. And I know, Mike, you're a big sports fan, the Dallas Cowboys, North Carolina basketball, and now Arsenal. I can't believe you brought up the Cowboys. I always like to explain (laughs) my Cowboys affiliation because everybody hates the Cowboys. (laughs) And I actually hate cowboy fans also, so <laughs> I, well, I'm a Cowboys self, fan. Self-hatred? Sort of. Well, I'm a Cowboys <laughs> fan um, circa Tony Dorsett, yeah. his days. So right. the, the, so I suffered through a 1-15 in 15 year. I suffered through the 49ers dominance in the 80s. Yep. So I, I, I always like to qualify that what kind of Cowboys fan I am. And I should say that you're also a Mets fan, so at least you didn't side with the Yankees. <laughs> I I was raised to be a Yankee fan. Actually, my father is a big Yankees fan, <laughs> and I, I rebelled against him. Um, and I rebelled by uh, picking Lee Mazzilli and Joel Youngblood as my favorite players. Who, <laughs> it, you'll, you'll never meet more journeyman players than those two. <laughs> okay, and... We're joined by novelist and literary commentator and History of Literature podcast listener, Reagan Sova. Reagan, welcome to the program, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. I'm, I'm delighted to, to be with you, too. And uh, I like that we can already start some uh, sports beef right off the bat, because I grew up as a huge fan of uh, Michigan's Fab Five, who were tragically felled <laughs> uh, by the North Carolina Tar Heels on on Chris Weber's uh, Greek <laughs> tragedy level Ooh. timeout. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Talking about literary, you're right. That was a great tragedy. That was One, a Shakespearean fall, whatever adjective you can come up with for the way he called that timeout when he didn't have one and, and the aftermath. One for the ages. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Reagan emailed me a while ago with some ideas about sports and literature, and I thought it would be interesting to hear his theory and test them against our own views. And Reagan, before we get to your theory, I thought we could talk for a moment about the state of sports and literature and sort of do the what before we do the why. So I'm defining literature here as fiction. And there's undeniably great books about sports and very popular books about sports, but most of them tend to be nonfiction. Is that how you view the landscape as well? Uh, yeah, I found the same thing. Um, I went to the, uh, the library yesterday and, um, 
and typed in sports and literature and was wondering what I would find. And really the only, the top hit that came up was the Corvette in literature and culture, America's sports car. And there really wasn't much else. So, um, That's right. I did the so, same yeah. thing. I actually did greatest novels about sports in Google. Okay. And the list that came back, almost none of them were actually novels. Even though I had typed in greatest uh, novels about sports, I got Friday Night Lights, which is nonfiction, Paper Lion, the George Plimpton book, Moneyball. Uh, the Boys of Summer, The Breaks of the Game. These are all nonfiction books. Um, and... Yeah. They're... Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, there really seems to be a, a dearth. And, you know, and it's not even like when I'm looking, I'm like, even just some, some books like Don DeLillo's Underworld, which really isn't about sports, but yeah. there's sports in it. But then trying to find a, a like totally kind of sports centric book about an athlete. That's, that's even harder yeah. uh, in terms of fiction. Yeah. So I will have a few examples of those, but let me just sort of set the stage for your theory here. So, you know, a hundred and 110 million people they're expecting. I think that's just in America. They're expecting we'll watch the Super Bowl pretty soon here. And billions of people are going to watch the Olympics. There's clearly you know, sports are a huge part of our our culture and our it's sort of common ground for a lot of people. And yet there's hardly any good novels about football or if there's a literary novel about the Olympics, I, it has not crossed my radar. I know kids love books about sports, fiction books about sports, but something about books for adults, literary fiction it just seems to dwindle or, or taper off. I do have a few examples we can talk about. But in any case, what's your theory about why sports just does not make its way into literary fiction? Yeah, um, I mean, mainly in in writing uh, my own book, which uh, here's a little recommendation, a book about the Olympics, Tiger oh. Island by Reagan Silva. Check it out. Oh, there we um, go. There we it, go. <laughs> yeah, it, um, you know, I, I was really careful not to um, write a, another installment of the Mighty Ducks or, you know, get get really corny uh, mm. because it seems like there are just tendencies uh, that are rewarded in sports by virtue of their structure, like teamwork, solidarity, fair play, good communication, uh, trust, you know, on down the line. Um, that are seemingly at odds with some of the major tendencies in both modernism and postmodernism. Um, just to give a couple examples, like in, in modernism, it seems one of the big uh, tendencies in that writing is alienation. And we can think of, for me, Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is, is hard to find. It's kind of like the archetypical modernist story with these characters totally alienated from one another. Um, another example would be The Stranger by Albert Camus, so, um, which is something of the, the opposite of, of good communication and teamwork. Uh, you also have in modernism this, this uh, theme of endless cycles of meaningless activity. Um, you know, I can think of Waiting for Godot or... Uh, J. Alfred Prufrock, you know, measuring his life day after day in coffee spoons. That's something that, you know, maybe sports could embody these endless cycles of meaningless activity. But 
I would say to the untrained eye, um, there, there's this great uh, letter exchange, uh, this, this book that was published uh, that's an epistolary uh, book between Paul Oster and J.M. Coetzee, and um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but there, um, there's an exchange they have where they're talking about sports, and, and Paul Oster says, um, well, you know, it may look like it's the same thing over and over again, but, um, you know, to, to the player, it's all new. And it's kind of like uh, a new a new pianist doing his interpretation of uh, Beethoven or or what have you. So um, also on modernism, there's you know cynicism and in, in, insincerity uh, also flies in the face of these uh, sports values to have a successful team. Um, right. In postmodernism, yeah, in postmodernism, I thought of you know, this irony uh, and ironic distance um, big in, in postmodern novels. And I thought it was interesting that David Foster Wallace, who's often identified as sort of waging this battle uh, against irony and cynicism and a part of this, you know, new sincerity. Sometimes the critics see, have seen this as post-postmodernism. Um, he was a competitive athlete, you know, a competitive junior tennis player and wrote these uh, now somewhat canonical, just glowing essays about the the near religious ecstasy of seeing Roger Federer. And, you know, so, so I wonder if that his experience in sports maybe brought him to this sincere uh, mindset. Um, but yeah. also in, in postmodernism, um, there, there's big tendencies of paranoia, disorientation, um, a distaste and distrust uh, of heroes, which that's something uh, that's big in sports, especially among the the younger set, you know, young boys trying to forge their identities and, you know, finding these heroes in, in sports. And, and then finally... I, won- I, wonder, yeah. I wonder if, as I, I listen to you, I wonder if there is a, a big market for kind of teenage, angst, teenage sports novels because i don't really can't really think of like an interesting young adult sports novel because i there there is like children's sports novels like matt christopher who i loved mm-hmm. yeah you know and yeah. now, now there's uh, mike, Lu- mike lupica now writes books that are kind of in that space for slightly uh-huh. older than than matt christopher books i think but yeah but the, I, really... I wouldn't call them interesting though <laughs> they're a little uh formulaic I, I I I do remember a Matt Christopher book about uh, his dog throwing a no hitter or something like that. That's just, <laughs> that, that maybe could be postmodern, but yeah. I I have the same complaints um, when I read actually not even like a novel about sports, but just sports journalism. Mm-hmm. That that there's there you know that I can kind of see that this is just a regurgitation of another article I've read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting how the sports journalists of the past uh, were oftentimes uh, the best writers in the newsroom. You know, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, um, right. Y- y- you know, I, I know there were others. And, and 
I think that's because it was it was the most red section, you know, out of all of them. So if you wanted to get red, that's where you would go as a writer into into sports. But um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting that you say that too, Mike, because I get I have this feeling that like sports have maybe um, become a little I don't know sanitized. Like it seems like the athletes aren't as interesting um as they used to be like i, I maybe, maybe i'm i'll get twitter hate for this but it seems like lebron <laughs> is like you know i picture lebron eating a big mac and driving a kia and that's what i know about him whereas like michael jordan i i picture him like gambling and smoking cigars and at least having these vices um <laughs> w- with my book like one of the things I was most proud about it was to get a blurb from this guy uh, named Bob Nastanovich who was in the indie rock bands pavement and silver juice. And one of the things I remember him saying in his, uh, in a documentary about pavement, he said, one of the things that brought him and the singer, Stephen Malcolmus together was that they were both demented sports fans. Um, (laughs) so I kind of count, you know, my book among that having grown up at the, crossroads of like punk rock and sports and these like mm-hmm. radical political leanings as you know hopefully i can find some other demented sports fans but but yeah i don't know if that's that's a market or uh if there's a need for these books that are not like corny like matt christopher but maybe could find a you know a young adult audience it seems like your theory, at least as far as sports would pertain to uh, readers of literary fiction, is that the things that would make sports that would lend itself to a uh, an interesting story, like a team that comes together, for example, which we've all seen mm-hmm. in, a, in a million uh, Disney movies or yeah, even more grown-up movies. You know, it's the tale of five very different personalities who have to learn to work together or have to overcome some kind of difference uh, in order to play as a team. And it's only by playing as a team that they achieve their their greatness, that kind of story. It seems like you're saying that most literary fiction authors would find that to be a little too saccharine or a little too convenient maybe not fitting the kind of project that they would have as a literary author yeah yeah i think that's that's exactly that's exactly right and you know a lot of the themes that you know like i've mentioned with with modernism and postmodernism, they they seem to yeah fly in the face of that that narrative but quality of Mm-hmm. Couldn't they use sports and turn it around then and and show maybe a a team that didn't that never came together or an individual who wasn't a hero in the end or couldn't they fit their their product their project of alienation or or something like that into a sports narrative? I, I think it, I, I think it's hard to it's hard to um, show successful teams and make them interesting it's a whole like you know a, a happy family is kind of boring to it's kind of boring to read a novel about a happy family but what about you know? a team breaking apart you know or a team that yeah that was successful but then they let their personal differences interfere and yeah. it seems like that could have dramatic potential too 
I think so. Yeah. Um, it's almost to me what's given rise to this, this 30 for 30 documentary series on ESPN is these filmmakers kind of taking hold of the, the narrative quality of sports and finding how sometimes even within a victory, there's a loss and you know, what happened with that. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. And there are certain sports like, you know, baseball is a team sport, but it can also be a very lonely sport, uh, especially when it's just like you versus the pitcher or, or you in the outfield and, you know, maybe nothing has come to you for four innings, you know? So let me roll out another theory. So there were some theories that I, as I was doing some research for this, there were some theories that I, I just flatly rejected, like, uh, men like sports and men don't read fiction. And so the market's not there. And I, I think those are, mm. you know, I, I think there's still plenty of people who would buy a sport and uh, sorry, who would buy a, a book about sports, a novel about sports. And I, there's also a lot of books that are use sports as a setting, a lot of genre books and mysteries and, and things like that. And I, I think, I think there are plenty of men who would buy it and there are plenty of women who would buy it if it was good. And there are plenty of women who are sports fans. And I, I think the gender argument is, is a little limited, mm-hmm. but my theory was slightly different from yours. I think I was thinking that sports, you know, the, the big thing about sports, and this is what my wife and I always talk about. She is not a sports fan at all, but what she recognizes is that what I like about sports is that there's a kind of certainty to it and there are winners Mm -hmm. and there are losers. There's a score and Mm -hmm. so many other aspects of life is just kind of amorphous and you don't really know if you're a success or not. There's there, there aren't ways to measure it, but when you watch a, a sporting event, by the time it's over, you know who won and you know who lost. And they, these decisive outcomes are what's appealing and then the most mm-hmm. the most dramatic scenarios in sports are when there are improbable outcomes, when the underdog wins or when uh, someone comes along like a Michael Jordan and they're just so uh, excellent that it's, you know, it, it seems to defy the, the general rules of probability. But the problem for fiction is that anything is possible. And so when you're reading fiction that's about sports, you're not talking about something being improbable because you're just thinking, well, the author's just making this up. So, of course, the underdog can win, or of course, this player can win six championships. Why not eight championships or 10 championships if they're that great? Mm-hmm. You know, so you sort of, you kind of miss the one thing that really makes sports great. I feel like sports suffers from having sports and literature suffers from having a, a, a formalistic problem. And I guess maybe that's what it, it kind of dovetails with what you were saying, Reagan, is that, you know, we, we enjoy spark sports. We w- enjoy watching sports. And most of us who watch sports love playing sports whenever we get a chance. Why should we read a novel mm. about sports? Like why? Cause sometimes when I watch television, I just think, why am I watching TV when I could see a movie that's more intense and more interesting about probably the same subject? Yeah, right. You, yeah. If you're watching a film about sports, you can hear the crowd. You can watch the, you know, the, the beauty of the athlete, of the movement. But when you're reading about it, maybe it's a, a pale version. 
Yeah, and the yeah. other thing I was thinking is like, to what, sorry, to what audience, you know, it's the whole Michael, Michael Lewis handles this really well. It's like, which sports audience are you talking to? Because when I read a sports novel and I feel like, you know, it's like when I'm talking to my sister and she tries to talk sports with me, it I cringe because she knows a little bit, but she doesn't know much. And that... <laughs> And it drives me crazy when someone's, they're being very polite and they're right. trying to, you know, like they're trying to take part in a meaningful conversation with me. But I just turn to them and say, like, don't bother because, I mean, do you really want to talk about Arsenal or not? Because, you know, don't, you know, you, you can't tell me like a couple of things and that you heard, overheard a couple of times. And so when I read a book, the same questions I ask when I read a book that has something supernatural like, is it made for people who know a lot of genre fiction or is it made for people who know nothing about genre fiction? And so yeah. you kind of get an explanation of the sports and how much they, you know, you get sports explanation, which drives me crazy. And when I read that in the UK, the, you know, the most written about sport in novels is cricket. And I just think I have no interest in reading any of those novels. And then I think, well, that's exactly what someone who's not a baseball fan would say about a book about baseball, you know, so I can kind of see where, as an author, you maybe are kind of, Reagan, you were smart to use the Olympics, because that's pretty universal. But for most authors, it's probably like they're thinking, well, I'm kind of crossing off most of my readership right off the bat, if they don't happen to be a fan, or like you're saying, Mike, if they're not a fan at my level. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it can be very reasonable regional in terms of the the interest one thing i was thinking about with just kind of the um sports as a narrative device is uh, a colleague i was at, for a while at the university of louisville in kentucky and and a colleague paul griner who's a, a a notable fiction writer in in his own right um i remember he he used to say you know a short story um to to sum it up is uh someone trying to get something uh there's a win lose or draw there's high stakes and and after that nothing is ever the same again and it with sports like there's a built-in motivation for your character they they want to win but with that you know like uh like mike said you know the the happy family somebody training assiduously day after day. Um, it's, it's not as interesting to watch as, you know, somebody clumsy, somebody struggling, somebody on the edge. Yeah. And maybe the stakes aren't high enough because Mm. at at the end of the day you win, but so what, it's just football or it's just a game or, I mean, the interesting parts are where the, a literary novel might take an athlete, but show, you know, the side of the sport that you don't normally see or or maybe the family relationships or the romantic relationships that the athletes have or to show the world of sports agents or the, mm. you know, the owners or, you know, something like that might be a, a bit more of a, give it a more stakes that we would associate with literary fiction. Yeah, one 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 thing in that regard that might be a, a novel waiting to be written is um i recently saw that borg McEnroe film uh uh, with with shia labeouf and um 
did some reading uh, after the film, and there's this whole postscript that Bjorn Borg tried to come back to tennis. Oh yeah, uh, like you know, <laughs> ten to fifteen years later. I remember. He, he, used, he used his wooden racket. <laughs> his wooden racket and it was just a disaster and i couldn't believe it but yeah you know something like that like an aging athlete uh trying to cling to past glory now now there's some some tragedy and and that could go deep yeah yeah or sports parents uh yeah it's a really interesting idea i don't know that it's it's i'm sure someone is taking a shot at it but it, it you know that would be an interesting idea for a novel it's yeah. hard when you're writing a, a novel about a professional athlete because if it's a golfer you just think well why not just write about tiger woods or phil mickelson and tell us what those guys did rather than you yeah. know tank mcnamara the four-time pga champion or something you know who cares about that guy mm. You know, I'd be interested to know what makes Roger Federer tick or Steph Curry or or somebody who we maybe see this polished image of, but we don't actually know their childhood or, or what drove them to success. Yeah. With those figures, I'd be remiss uh, in in thinking about just postmodern tendencies and, and how they might be applied to sports. I can't help think of that documentary about the Pittsburgh Pirates player Doc Ellis who supposedly pitched a no-hitter while on LSD but (laughs) people can look up that documentary yeah you know I was thinking of the 30 for 30 documentaries that you mentioned earlier because it does seem to show that I mean the people who are watching those are not people who only want their their sports to be the Anaheim Mighty Ducks version of it. Mm -hmm. They're people who are interested in human drama, but it also shows that nonfiction is, seems to be the prevailing Mm -hmm. uh, genre for those. So I wanted to ask you what books are out there. What do you think works? Are there any literary fiction that you would recommend to people? Yeah, for me, the, the, the top dog has to be DeLillo's Underworld that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it begins with this famous uh, shot heard around the world, which is um, Ralph Branca and, and Bobby Thompson's uh, famous home run, um, where there's that famous call, the Giants win the pennant. And DeLillo talks about, there's this great NPR interview on YouTube uh, where he talks about the day after that he found in the New York times perfectly symmetrical is the, the headline about that game and right next to it, the headline Soviets test atomic bomb. And it was these two events, one that brought people together and one that made people paranoid and drove people apart. And that those two conflicting themes run throughout the novel and he uses a, a, debi- a, uh, a device with that baseball, the, the Bobby Thompson baseball, to where um, the, the character goes on a, a hunt for this baseball and eventually in the story is says, you know, I put an ad out for that ball and 10 people showed up claiming to have the true baseball, which is the same as nobody showing up to have it and just kind of uses it as a device to to problematize and and get us to think about truth with a capital T and, and some of those more postmodern elements that, that I mentioned. So underworld is definitely a favorite. Yeah. How about you, Mike? 
You know, it, it's funny. I, I the books that I love, I, like I've never read "Bang the Drum Slowly." Right. I mean, I've ne- Mark you know, and or yeah, or Field of Dreams, and but the the sports books I love, I I would argue read like fiction. Um, Fever Pitch <laughs> by Nick Hornsby and uh, a Fan's Notes, which it, it, they call it fiction, but it's really not fiction. But I, I, I think of it as fiction. Well, that's funny because I by Frederick Exley. Yeah, I think of Fever Pitch as being uh, nonfiction, but I think of a fan's notes as being fiction. I think we list fans' notes as fiction, but yeah. he, he he calls it something else. Um, uh, but you know, the thing about those books and um, what when I the books I like about sports is, you know, just tell me something I don't know and just kind of strip the people of the sports glory that I'm used to, to, to seeing and reading about. Mm-hmm. So the, the fever pitch, if people haven't read it, um, it's about Nick Hornsby's obsession with Arsenal soccer football club. And he, he has many lines where he, he basically talks about how pathetic he is. <laughs> like he, he has this line where he, he goes through um, all his emotions. And then at the end he says, the most common feeling for any sports fan is disappointment. Mm. Like 99% of your time, you're disappointed. Yeah. With that standard, you can, you're always, you can only do better. Right. But the, there are moments in that book where you just feel like he, he's talking direct to, to the way you've been living your life and he calls into question how crazy sports is and then at the end he kind of redeems everything by saying you know it's still better to spend your time following sports than doing other things that is a lot like a fan's notes where it's really about obsession more than what i think reagan was initially raising which was about the life of an athlete yeah you can divide that into the the player's role and and the spectator's role I, I also like books where sports is just sort of sprinkled in. I like in Humboldt's Gift, with the, the narrator is always playing racquetball. You know, he's trying to stay in shape, but he's playing racquetball. Or Rabbit Run has got some good basketball scenes. And uh, The Great yeah. Gatsby has got that thing about fixing the World Series and the Black Sox scandal and it's nice because it feels real like it shouldn't be necessarily something to avoid sports is a very powerful and integral part of our society and so it seems odd that a writer might write 20 novels and never mention sports yeah um i think there's something to a lot of these young adult sports series we mentioned there seem to be more geared towards boys and there's i might have mentioned before just that um period in in a boy's life when he's you know finds a hero in sports and is finding his identity and and i think it's interesting that in hemingway it's the old man and the sea that's what um the old man and and the young boy bond over is these uh the baseball scores in in the paper and they talk Mm -hmm. about that and yeah, Hemingway was one of the best examples, maybe, of a, a literary fiction author who could bring sports to a even a non-sports audience with his, you know, he wrote about boxing and bullfighting. And, mm. you know, I think he makes it, even though I had no real 
knowledge of those sports or interest in them necessarily. I was able to uh, see what he was getting at and, and follow the drama of his this, the sports that he created. You know, you know which book I read uh, a few years ago that I, again, I, I felt like it read like fiction was Open by Andre Agassi. Um, and, right. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you get the, again, it, it's what, what, what happens in the book is what I liked, which is he's kind of stripped naked yeah. of, and you get to see his, his drug addiction, his obsession with his hair loss, um, wearing, trying to find a good wig. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> way he was trained by his father who had rigged a tennis ball machine to shoot a ball, 2000 balls a day. And the father nicknamed the machine, the dragon. <laughs> and he would make, he would make Andre hit 2000 balls a day. Right. I mean, so that book, um, I, I, I read it in like a weekend. I couldn't believe how good it was. I mean, it's got details the way, a a really inventive fiction writer would would come up with details yeah i mean it's it's an interesting bookend to all the tennis scenes in infinite jest mm. you know people are training but there's also like friendship and kind of making fun of the training and goofing around they play this fake game called echelon which is they they lob tennis balls in the air and pretend they're nuclear weapons and they map out the world on tennis court. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think you, you, maybe Infinite Jest is, is also an example of where the sports is, you know, pops up here and there in an interesting way. Let's talk about the art of fielding, which I think a lot of people would cite as an example of a, a successful literary fiction a novel about sports predominantly about sports i know i don't know if you've read it reagan uh i haven't read it i just got a text from someone who sort of angrily said what do you mean there are no novels about sports what about the art of fielding that's a great book but mike i know you had mixed feelings about it <laughs> i i didn't take to it but i i was talking to somebody recently who, who said that you know she didn't like elena ferrante's neapolitan novels which <laughs> and you know, I I have another friend who who hated Alice Munro's Bear came over the mountain. So to each their own. I mean, yikes. Um, and so, but art of fielding. Here, here's my problem with art of fielding is that, and I I I like the the these guys Noah Chad Chad, Chad uh, Harbach and his buddy who started N Plus One, the journal in Brooklyn and you know, their love for literature and history. And I love that. But the book to me is like the corrections, but without good writing, without deep digging into characters. Hmm. And so I think if you like, I can enjoy Walking Dead, but to me, the art of fielding is like, you know, a little bit like a liter literary version of Walking Dead. Hmm. So yeah, it didn't didn't like, go deep enough. No, and, and it, the the whole thing with uh, the the baseball friendship, there were moments when they were interesting. That I think there's like an aging catcher and there's a young upstart shortstop, and they become friends, up and coming shortstop. And I just I I could not buy that friendship. Yeah, you 
Okay, so let me ask you about some classic works of literature and tell me if you would consider them a sports book. Beowulf. <laughs> Is there sports in it? Well, it's got competition. <laughs> right? One-on-one. -on -one. Isn't that... Isn't that like a boxing match, wrestling match, when Beowulf goes out to uh, yeah. to do battle? Yeah. It's certainly closer to that than what we would think of as modern warfare, I would say. Hmm. Put that way, I might buy that, that reading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, how about Moby Dick? Mm. Well, I don't yeah, I mean... <laughs> I was going to say, I don't consider fishing a sport. Sport fishing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this, That's what I was thinking has... about Old Man in the Sea. Yeah, it's like, it's a type of, is, is yeah. that fishing a sport? But yeah, I might be with you on that one, Mike. Okay, let's leave things there. Mike, thanks again, as always, for joining us uh, on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. And uh, I wanted to throw in, Reagan, that I'm actually a big Pavement fan, so... Uh, oh, cool. Well, hopefully, um, I will the, check the out stamp, the <laughs> yeah. stamp of uh, approval from from Nastanovich. He he called yeah. Tiger Island a delightful read uh, with stylistic uh, um, shades of of Wes Anderson and Salinger. So hopefully, people will check that out if they're interested in that. Thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, I will. Reagan, good luck with the novel, and thanks for joining us today on the History of Literature. Uh, Jack and Mike, it was a delight and an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of the, the podcast, so this was a real treat. Thanks so much. our conversation let's summarize i heard three or maybe three and a half theories there the first one was the one that i read online which came from the atlantic magazine men don't read much fiction men like sports therefore there's no audience for a novel about sports there's something instinctive about this but i think it's flawed it can't be the only explanation but i think with mike's addition to this, his gloss on this, we get to something that does seem meaningful. Literary fiction tries very hard to be universal. In some ways, that's the point of literature. We talk about individuals, but in a way that everyone, whatever your own particular background is, or your race, or your gender, or your occupation, or your age, or your nationality, or your religion, we still look for things that can be meaningful to everyone. And what's universal in our world Families, that's pretty universal. Work, friendships, love, those are things that pretty much everyone can access, or they're prominent enough to us to enable us to buy in to whatever the author is selling. But what about heroes and villains and underdogs and champions? Aren't those universal? Sports has those. Well, maybe those things aren't as significant in sports as they would be in, say, a serial killer or a union worker fighting for rights, a man put in prison, a captain of industry. Maybe the stakes are just different when we're out of the sports world. Maybe judges and doctors and 
cops and daycare workers, maybe those are our heroes or underdogs. Maybe selfish people are our villains, family tyrants. Maybe when it's sports, it becomes too much of a fantasy world. It's a fantasy hero, a hero for children. Then there's Mike's point, which I thought was a good one. Even if we stick to sports, not everyone likes the same sport, and not everyone is a fan at the same level. So an author faces even more complexities when trying to determine an audience. Reagan, in the next theory, says the problem is that sports is not well-suited for fiction, at least literary fiction as we think about it today. Everything that sports values, community, hard work, consensus, simple victories, happy endings, those are things that modernism and postmodernism and maybe even post-postmodernism has tended to avoid. Instead, we see in after modernism, rugged individuals, alienation, lack of cooperation. Imagine Kafka at a high school basketball game. Would he find anything there that represented the way he felt about society? My theory tends to be a little bit different. I think literary fiction seeds the field to nonfiction because we care more about actual athletes. Fiction can make anything up. Well, that's wonderful most of the time, but it's kind of a flaw when it comes to books about sports because what is excellent about sports is that the improbable happens. The U.S. hockey team pulls off an upset. Michael Jordan gets the flu and still somehow manages to outplay the other team in a finals game. Jack Nicholas wins the Masters years after his prime has ended. Those things make us wonder, what did Jack Nicholas eat for breakfast that day? How were his wife or his kids involved, and what did they think after he won? Did he have any rivalries on the course that mattered? Did he himself think he could do it? How did he mentally prepare it's interesting to learn the story behind the story because the story itself actually happened and he was an actual great champion who overcome some adversity of the aging process in order to bring us all something special, yet another triumph of the human spirit, but an actual triumph. Not one that was made up. I think the answer is probably a combination of all of the above. Here's the thing. We don't have to pick among those theories, and we don't have to live in a terrible world devoid of literary sports or devoid of sports written by great writers. Great writers can tackle actual events, actual athletes and coaches and fans and agents. They can use the techniques of fiction, dialogue, internal monologues, dramatic tension, plot, character, arc. They can make nonfiction books as compelling and informative as fiction, using fiction's tools. And once in a while, an author like Chad Harbach or Philip Roth or Bernard Malamud can come along and say, well, actually, I think I can make it up. I'll make up a fictional team and I can make that work. Or we'll get an essayist or a novelist, Don DeLillo or David Foster Wallace or Frederick Exley or Nick Hornby. And they'll say, well, this can be fiction because I'm writing about fans and the nature of obsession or because I'm writing about the impact of this sporting event on society or me or because I just want to have my characters attending this particular game so I can talk about the sweep of society and the way it was 
monitored by the people in the crowd. It puts them all in one place. Fiction's big enough to encompass all of this. It's big enough to survive a snub of adults like my friends, my lifelong friends who say, yeah, I'd read nonfiction books about sports. My kids would read fiction. Fiction says, ah, yes, go ahead. We'll let nonfiction borrow all of our techniques that we've developed all the way since Jane Austen and before. Go ahead, reader. Read all the nonfiction you want. And guess what? When you're ready for us again, we'll be here waiting for you. Maybe with a hug, or maybe with a high five. Or maybe, as in the best stories about sports, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, with both. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Reagan Sova, whose book is called Tiger Island. And as he mentioned, comes highly recommended by a member of the rock group, Pavement. And of course, my thanks to Mike, El Presidente, whose Cowboys will never replace the Green Bay Packers as the true America's team. The town owns the team! You can't do better than that, even if America doesn't always seem to remember how awesome something like that is. The town owns the team. Everyone complains about billionaires, but nobody ever does anything about them. Except for Mark Twain, when he wasn't busy talking about the weather. Nice guy, great writer, easily distracted. Mark Twain, and a great sports fan as well. Golf, he said, is a good walk spoiled. My sentiments exactly. Especially on those days when my drives go slicing through the woods and into the parking lot of the Wendy's next door. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.